Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning I will read beginning in verse 9, and I will read through verse 15 for you. Beginning in verse 9, the Word of God reads, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what? We are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all. That those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of God. For the people of God this Sunday morning. I begin by sharing a remembrance with you, one that comes from when I was growing up uh, with my parents in our childhood home, where my parents tried to get our family into part-time ranching. Uh, but as a consequence of that, in reality, the whole thing turned into us having an odd assortment of animals that the family, and really my brother and I, shared responsibilities and caring for. All of them had really interesting names that really kind of revealed the personalities of my family. And I've got more stories about these odds and ends of misfit toy uh, pets that we wound up keeping. I've got more stories than you have time to hear about them. I will tell you, we had Porky the Potbellied Pig, who I remember one Sunday, uh, Sunday afternoon, we were over in Pleasanton and I chased that little potbellied piglet around in a, in a little pen and grabbed the one that we wound up taking home. A cute little piglet, before long, turned into a 350-pound monstrosity. And this tells you how much we did not know about potbelly pigs because we didn't know that you shouldn't free-feed the things. We had Billy the Goat. Billy the Goat loved to ram anybody in his pen the minute you turned your back on him. If you're familiar with ostriches, which are those really tall uh, birds that are either black in feather or gray in feather that you might see at the zoo or you see when you drive through the, the drive-through safaris, we had their shorter cousins that are called emus and rias. Our first pair of emus were named Elvis and Priscilla, mainly because my mother was a huge Elvis Presley fan. And my parents got into this because they wanted to become emu breeders. And so I think in some small way, those, my, those names represented my parents' hope that the two would 
share a hunk of hunk of burning love with each other because they needed these things to reproduce. Speaking of childhood memories, when my dad would tinker in his shop, he always had a radio playing with some sort of rock music on it. I remember so many songs that I thought, because my dad was playing them, had to be classified as classic rock. In other words, in my youthful mind, the type of music that was the old stuff, my dad was listening to it. And I was thinking this week about love and bringing up these memories. I remember one song that would often blare on my dad's radio was by the band named Foreigner that goes by the title, I Want to Know What Love Is. When I looked up the lyrics to it this week to just refresh my memory about the song, I discovered two things about I Want to Know What Love Is. The first is that Foreigner released the song in the same year that I was born, which leads to my second discovery. My childhood definition of old needs, uh, needs some revision, I think. But where Foreigner's desperation was to know what love is, I wonder, do you and I know what it is? Do you and I know what it is? See, in our context, it, or love, is living the Christian life. That means following Jesus, serving Jesus, and sharing Jesus with others. And it is my hope this morning that by the end of this message that you can answer, do you want to know what love is? By saying, I know exactly what it is. If I could this morning uh, condense this message into a sentence, it would be this. Why do you do what you do for the Lord? Why do you do what you do for the Lord? What I want to invite us to do this morning is not focus on what you do for God. What I want to invite us to do is to think about why you do what you do for the Lord. Why'd you get up, for example? Why'd you get up this morning and come to church? Why'd you give an offering to the Lord? Why did you sing the songs of praise that we sang this morning? Why are many of you teaching children or teaching youth or teaching adults? In other words, what motivates you? What motivates you to serve God? Is that motivation coming from a sense of obligation? Or does it come from a sense of love? In this passage of scripture, we see what motivated Paul to serve the Lord. And so I wonder, what are your true motives that cause you to serve the Lord? I'll tell you right now, you might as well be honest with yourself because I can't see your motives. And equally, you can't see mine. I know you can see me right now standing up here uh, with, a, with a Bible open before me, but you can't truly know why I'm doing it. Only the Lord and I know what my true motives are. And as we talk about right and wrong motives through the course of this morning, you'll discover that your motives, if you discover that your motives are not the best, then I want you to be aware you can change your motives. In other words, you can ask God to purify your motives. And as we talk about this, we're going to talk about it by raising three questions going through this text. Raise three questions, we'll offer some answers. The questions and the answers will come overhead. The first question I want us to engage with this morning is this. What's life's greatest goal? What is life's greatest goal? What is the greatest goal you have in your life? Do you even have a life goal? Are there any targets that you're shooting for? 
Or perhaps are you like the fellow who shot his firearm at the side of his barn and then drew bullseyes around where those bullet holes were and then called them his targets? If I handed you a card and a pen and I said, write down in one sentence your purpose for living, what is it that you would write? What would you write? I was looking through my personal effects and a few few years ago I came across what I wrote when I asked myself this question a few years ago and I wrote a purpose statement for my life. I said there, my purpose is to share Jesus with as much of the world as I can. That might be well and good, but I want us to ask, what was Paul's goal in life? Well, we don't have to wonder because it's stated for us in verse 9. You see that if your Bible's still open. It says, so whether we're at home or we're away, we make it our aim to please him. To please who? To please who, we wonder. Is him our our earthly father, our our friend, our spouse, our peer group, our, our pastor? Who is it that our goal should be to please, we wonder? Well, I think we find that answer insinuated or made clear by what Paul says in verse 9. Life's greatest goal should be to please the Lord. But I wonder, is that true for you? Do you simply exist to to go to school and to graduate, to, to go out into the world, to work, and to then eventually, hopefully, retire, only to then find yourself as a resident of a nursing home until you die? May I would challenge you to consider making your goal in life to please the Lord. Oh, You please the Lord by worshiping Him, serving Him, obeying Him, and sharing His Word. But remember, this text is all about why. It's about the motives. To God, why you do something for Him is far more important, far more superior than what it is you do for Him. It's important that we remove any impure motives that we may have. I mean, the Bible says this elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, Paul writes to that church. He goes on to say, But just as we we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Let me ask you, are you a people pleaser or are you a God pleaser? And that's a really important question because here's the other side of it. You can't be both. Here's something I've learned. I've discovered along the way that as long as you please God, it does not matter who you displease in this life. It doesn't matter as long as you're pleasing God. But if you displease God, it does not matter who you have pleased in this life either. When Jesus was baptized, the the voice of the Father was audibly heard by all who were present. At Jesus' baptism, the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We should make it our aim, our purpose, to please the Lord as well. Then that brings us to the question of our motives. This is our second question. What are the wrong motives for trying to please God? I raise this question because sometimes people do the right thing, but they do so with the wrong intentions or they do so with the wrong motive. I mean, did you ever hear about the two women who were talking? 
One of, them who was, one of them was showing off her engagement ring and talking about her upcoming marriage. And her friend, the other woman, asked, well, do you really love him? And the engaged girl with this huge ring, she says, oh, I worship the very ground that his daddy discovered oil on. Since we're talking about motives, let me share with you some weak motives that I believe come from trying to please God. They're going to be listed as three answers, and I'm going to tell you these are not all of them, but they're a start for us to consider and pray through this morning. One such motive comes from the realm of fear. The realm of fear. What do you think we might fear that would motivate us as Christians? Fear of punishment. Fear of punishment. That comes up because some people still envision God as a wicked taskmaster who's just waiting to crack the whip when we get out of line. I remember hearing about uh, some people talking about a particular uh, preacher that I've heard of that's, who they were calling a yeller. When this guy preaches, he sounds mad. He sounds mad because he is. He's the kind of preacher who starts loud and just gets really loud by the time he's done. I don't remember much about the content of his messages other than he had a favorite phrase and he would say, God's going to get you for that. He'd wave his bony finger at the people in the congregation, stare into the TV screen, and he'd say, God's going to get you for that. I confess, I'd hear those types of messages and I wasn't really sure what it was that God was going to get me for, but I would try to walk the straight and narrow after I heard him say that. And I managed to do that for a couple hours after he said it. Fear of punishment may be a good deterrent to go decrease crime, but it's a poor motivation for trying to please God. People who act out of fear of punishment, they usually don't think that they ever please God, by the way. So they just keep on trying to work harder and harder at pleasing the Lord. That's a miserable way to live. It's an absolutely miserable way to live if you're wrought in the fear of punishment. Now, another Wrong intention about why you do what you do for the Lord comes from the sense of guilt. The sense of guilt. What do you think? Guilt over what? Guilt over your past failures. Guilt over our past failures. Many Christians are on one long guilt trip where they've determined to work hard to pay God back for all their sins and all their mistakes. It's not a pleasure trip when you find yourself on this, by the way. I mean, I know we've all heard about the sense of paying it forward, but Christians who are stuck on their guilt over their past failures are working overtime to try not to pay it forward, but to pay it back. The line that comes from the old hymn that says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be, that may drive folks who are caught in their guilt over past failures towards the wrong motivation towards serving God. We need to be reminded daily that God's grace is a free gift that comes with no strings attached. In other words, you cannot pay God back for His grace. You cannot pay God back for His mercy. And yet we find ourselves in this Christmas season, one that we most uh, obviously mark through the exchange of gifts. In fact, we, re we refer to it that way in our family gatherings, don't we? We're going to exchange gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. But the reality is that if you're exchanging gifts with someone, it's not really a gift then. It's a trade. 
In other words, you've entered or bartered into a negotiation where I will give so long as you give in return. No, that's not the biblical sense of what God's grace is as a gift. A true gift is one that you give with no desire or expectation for anything in return. That's God's gift of grace to you and I. And yet, expressed in Christianity is this thing known as legalism. Legalism is the wrong belief that you can make God love you more by working harder for Him. That's why some Christians, they go about working so hard. They work tooth and nail down to the bone for the Lord. And then they finally burn out. It may be time for you to to end this guilt trip that you're living on and move from what I would call legalism lane onto Grace Avenue. If you make that move, it will be the best and greatest move you ever make. So we have fear, we have guilt. Another sense in which creates a poor motivation to serve the Lord comes from a sense of desire. Sense of desire. Desire for what, we wonder? For personal recognition. See, we're all born with a desire to be recognized. All born with a desire to be rewarded. I mean, as children, we, when we perform for our parents, we say, look at me. See what I'm doing. See how strong I am. See how fast I run. From the time when we learn to ride a bike, we see, see, ma, no hands. We all want attention, right? And when we're on a stage or we're on the athletic field or we're aware of where our parents are, we're aware that there's people who've come to watch us. And by and large, we love growing up in the spotlight. And the desire for personal recognition is really a sign of spiritual immaturity. I mean, we remember uh, that in the, New, in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, Jesus chides the Pharisees because they loved to blow a trumpet every time they gave their money saying, look at me. Look how much I can give. The Pharisees, they loved to pray out loud. They loved to pray in a public way before men saying, look at me. Look at the wonderfully spiritual words that I have in my vocabulary that you don't. What does Jesus tell them in those prayers? He says the best prayer is when we shut ourselves up in a closet and pray to God. Not before men. The best good deeds are when we give and our right hand doesn't know what our left hand's doing. In other words, a, a mark of spiritual maturity is when we're constantly turning the spotlight that naturally comes our way from this world away from us. And when we turn that spotlight away, what we're really doing is turning the attention and the focus to the Lord and what He's actually doing. Now, those are three wrong motives for trying to please God. Which brings us then to our third question. We have wrong motives. What are the right motives then? When Yvette and I were making preparations to build our last home, I remember that our first visit with the builder, we come to um, uh, a large table that was in his, in his office, uh, a, a drawing room. And he rolls out a huge sheet of paper, like the biggest piece of paper I've seen in, in my, you know, just in one setting, right? And the whole thing's blank. And he says to us after he rolls this out in some dramatic fashion, now tell me about the home you want. Let's draw it right now. And maybe there's some of you who are just uber creative and that sounds enticing, but that was like paralyzing for Yvette and I. It was overwhelming to actually draw out a project from nothing. 
And that first visit we found became a sign of things to come. Every step along the way, there were countless options of colors and materials and whatever for everything. So many, so many different types of things to choose from. We eventually had to ask the builder to help us because we couldn't make these decisions. And so we asked them, like, hey, when it comes to the, the wood, can you put this in a, in a category of, of good and better and best? Okay? Or the, the color of the floors or the color of the grout, whatever. Good, better, best. That will at least help us. Because we know if they put something in the good category, in the good column, that it would be good enough for us. But we also knew that if something came in the better column, it might be more durable, it might stand the test of time better. But we also knew that it would cost a little more. And then we knew that if something came in the better column, that that would be the thing that was like the, the roll out all the stops. This is the, the cream of the crop of whatever it was that we had a choice to make on. And of course, that had the highest price tag. When it comes to the right motives for serving and obeying the Lord, I would tell you I think that there's a good motive, a better motive, and a best motive. Coming to a good motive, coming back to this sense of reward. There is reward that comes with the Christian life. That's inescapable for you and I. And praise be to God for that. But at times, our motive, a good motive for obeying the Lord, is this motive from the reward of being with him. The reward of being with Christ. We see that. It says that for the Apostle Paul, being in Christ's presence wasn't just a future destination. It was a present motivation. You see that in verse 10 if your Bible's still open. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now one reason we should be serving... Uh, worshiping or giving or obeying or witnessing to others is because we have to recognize that one day we will each stand before the judgment seat. We're going to stand before the Lord in judgment. For those who are in Christ, we will stand before him to receive reward. Well, this won't be like a courtroom for us. This is going to be like a public platform where awards and recognitions are handed out. And part of our reward will be the crowns that we receive. If you will, like the garland crowns that were given to those who competed in the Greek Olympics. But we're not going to wear those crowns for very long because we're going to fall at the feet of Jesus and cast our crowns before him. I don't know about you, but I am eternally motivated to have a dump truck full of crowns to lay before the Lord. But that's not ultimately the greatest reward that's going to come for me. It's not. No, the greatest reward won't be the crowns. The greatest reward that comes to the Christian is hearing those words that only our Lord can speak. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. The reward of being with Christ is a good motivation to serve the Lord, to please the Lord. And yet there's a better motive. And here we come back to that sense of fear. That sense of fear. But a different type of fear. Fear of the Lord. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 11, right? It says there, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
Now, like Paul, I'm continually trying to persuade people to turn from their sins. I'm continually trying to to persuade people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Why do I do it? I do it because one reason is because I know what it is to fear the Lord. Reading the Bible is like real estate. Do you know what the three most important factors are that determine the value of real estate? Do you know them? Location, 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 right? The same is true for understanding the Bible. Location, 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 or what you'll otherwise hear someone like me refer to as context. Context, context, context. Where is this verse about fearing the Lord found? Well, most immediately, it's after the verse about appearing before the the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat. When you understand the judgment seat, my friends, you will want to live your life trying to persuade men and women to come to Christ. You need to know what it is to fear the Lord. You need to know it because the Bible says in Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the what? The beginning of wisdom. Not only that, in Proverbs chapter 1, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. My friend, if you want wisdom, if you want knowledge, you must start by fearing the Lord. And yet I tell you, fearing the Lord is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the Bible. I mean, I wonder, does anyone here fear snakes? That's not what it means to fear the Lord. You fear spiders? It's not what it is to fear God. It's not a phobia like public speaking. It's not a phobia like a fear of heights. To fear the Lord doesn't mean that you cringe in terror before him. There's a definition that I think is the best I found for fearing the Lord that comes from a man named Brennan Manning. If I would ever suggest that you memorize a definition, it's this one. He says, the biblical meaning of the fear of the Lord is silent wonder. Radical amazement and affectionate awe at the goodness of God. Memorize those three adjectives. Memorize those three nouns. Silent wonder, radical amazement, and affectionate awe. Friends, that's what it means to fear the Lord. The reason Paul was a fanatic traveling all over the known world, preaching Christ and Him crucified, living a life, persuading people to trust in Jesus was because of His absolute awe and respect for the Lord. If you're one who's into acrostics, here's one that might help you remember what it means to fear the Lord. If you take those four letters, fear, F-E-A-R, it's Father earned all respect. Our Father has earned all and respect. It's a wonderful way to to remember what it means to fear him. And when you fear the Lord, it doesn't cause you to turn and run from him like you would that big rattlesnake. It causes you to fall on your face before him in awe and respect. I would warn you, if you casually talk about the good Lord or you casually talk about the man upstairs, I warn you, you may not know what it is to fear the Lord. If you claim to have your ticket punched to heaven, but you never give, or you never serve, or you never share your faith, my friend, you do not know what it means to fear the Lord. I mean, you look at the prophet Isaiah in the opening of his book. He saw the glory of the Lord, and he hears the angels shouting back and forth in that heavenly chorus, Holy, holy, holy! 
And what does he say? He says, woe is me. I'm, a, I'm as good as dead right now. But then God comes and he says, who can I send to deliver my message? And Isaiah, he's like the, the proverbial first grader in that, that classroom that sometimes wears a teacher out. He's waving his hand. He's saying, here I am. Here I am. Send me. Because he feared the Lord. That's why we persuade men. That's why we persuade women. Why we persuade boys and girls to turn to Jesus. Because we know what it is to fear the Lord. We know that the reality that everyone will stand before the judgment seat is coming. And that's a powerful motivation to please the Lord, isn't it? But it's only under my better category. And as good as it is, I think there's yet a best motive. What is that best motive? It has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. What is it about him? I think the best motive is his love. See, Paul was so energetic about sharing Christ that people often thought, this guy's crazy. He's lost his mind. You read in Acts chapter 26, there's a man named Festus, and he tells Paul, he says, Paul, you know you're out of your mind. In fact, your great learning, you are so educated, I think it's made you crazy. I mean, we read Paul admitting here in verses 13 and 14. At times, he's behind, beside himself. He says, for if we're beside ourselves, if you have the perception we're crazy, it's for the Lord. And then he says, if we're in our right mind, it's for you. He goes on to say, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. That word controls means in the original language to seize or to hold together. In the, in the original Greek, it's the word suneko. It's a word that we get in the English our word echo from. Everywhere Paul turned, he's confronted, if you will. Everywhere he turns, he's confronted with an echo that reverberates through his heart and his mind. The love of Christ. The love of Christ. The love of Christ. Maybe you're wondering right now, is, is he talking about the love that Christ has for me or the love that I have for Christ? The answer is yes. I mean both. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. Why do we serve the Lord so diligently and faithfully? It's not to earn our salvation, but because we love the one who first loved us. There's a little poem that I greatly enjoy that goes like this. It says, I cannot work my soul to save that work my Lord has done, but I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear son. Do you, know what, do you want to know what love is? It's everything. It's everything. Everything that is worth pursuing. Everything that is worth holding. Everything that is worth receiving, the love of God is everything. Love should be a primary motive for wanting to please God. It's Jesus who says in John chapter 14, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and we will make our home with him. It's important to understand what Jesus did not say in that verse in John chapter 14. He did not say, if you keep my commandments, 
then you'll love me. In other words, I want you to hear this. Obedience does not produce love. It's the other way around. Love always produces obedience. Let me illustrate that. When I was about 19, one Sunday morning, I picked up Yvette from her home, and we were uh, going to go to church together that day. And I was coming down 132 from the Great Lands of Nataya here towards Divine, and I, as I came past what was Super S, you know, each of you know that there's that angled road off to the left off 132 known as transportation. And we were caught up in conversation about what might happen at church that day. And I got to about where Valdez Restaurant used to be, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and one of Divine's finest had lit me up. I was speeding. The officer asked me as I rolled down my window where it was that I was going in such a hurry that day, and I thought, man, I've got the best get-out-of-a-speeding-ticket story in the world. And I told him, I said, sir, I am headed to church. Now, I'm telling you this story because it's actually a story of justice. It's not a story of mercy or grace. I was guilty. I was speeding. And the officer did his job that Sunday morning. And he wrote me that speeding ticket. And even now, when I'm driving on transportation, 20 years later, I'm really careful to watch my speed. But I'm going to tell you, it's not because that comes from a spirit of love that is causing me to obey. No, obeying that speed limit hasn't made me love the police officer who gave me that ticket, nor do I even love that speed limit law that's on that street myself. I think the thing needs to be higher, obviously. So why is it that I obey the law? Not because of love, but in the reality, the awareness that getting somewhere 60 seconds earlier just isn't worth the cost of the ticket to me. Obedience does not produce love. But Jesus said that love's, love produces obedience. Are you one, maybe this morning, who's found themselves in a miserable state? Maybe legalistically working out your faith by maintaining a long list of rules and regulations? Checking the boxes off meticulously out of a sense of duty or moral obligation? And then you wonder why you, you find that your faith is so dead. You, you have a spiritual life that's lifeless. You ever wonder that? It's because there's no love driving it. I want us to go back to the best analogy that Jesus gave to describe our relationship with God. The relationship that we have with God, thanks be to Jesus Christ through him, makes God our Father. And because of that, we are his children. Now, each of us here this morning who are parents know our children obey us for many different reasons. I mean, I'll tell you, my girls obey me sometimes because I know that they want something. And that's okay for them to do every now and again. They, may, they might obey me sometimes because I've maybe threatened to use some leather reinforcement if they didn't obey. Yet that forced obedience wasn't very pleasant for them or for me. Sometimes they obey me without question because they simply respected my position as their father. That's an okay reason. But as every parent knows, on those infrequent occasions where our children obey us, and they do so simply because they love us, there's no better feeling that we could experience in the world. There's a huge difference between obligation and love. 
duty may write a letter, but love will tuck in a joke or a picture or a gift card. Duty may keep a clean house, but it's love that makes a happy home. Duty gets offended if a gift is not acknowledged, but love laughs at the sheer joy of giving the gift. Duty can pour a glass of milk, but love will put a little chocolate in it. Duty makes you do something well, but love makes you do something beautiful. Duty does the right thing, but love does the thing right. And it's the love of Christ that compels families, even today, to go and sell all their possessions and plant their lives in a part of the world where they don't know Jesus Christ. Some people would call that crazy. But love makes you do crazy things. It's the love of Christ that compelled, if you remember the news cycles from years ago, it was the love of Christ that compelled an Amish community to forgive the man who entered their school and shot their children. Some people call that crazy, but love makes you do crazy things. And during this Christmas season, people are going to do a lot of nice things. They act a little crazy in a good way. The last couple of weeks, you may have been one who delivered Thanksgiving meals for our homebound and senior saints. Why'd you do that? You may have taken an angel off of our angel tree. Why? You may be trying to provide a Christmas for a needy family. You may make an extravagant offering to our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. That's all well and good. In fact, that's great. But check your motives. Why are you doing it? Is it primarily because you love Jesus? Friends, if there's another motive, you have the power right now to, to readjust that motive. Right now, why don't you just say, Jesus, this good deed is simply because I love you. I don't want any credit. I don't want any limelight. I don't want any recognition. I don't want any reward. I do this just because I love you. You need to adjust that. Love is a powerful thing. And there is not a price that love is not willing to pay. One of the greatest examples of unselfish love was demonstrated by a woman named Princess Alice of Hesse. In announcing her death in 1878, British Prime Minister William Gladstone reported to Parliament the touching story, story of how Princess Alice died. The children of the princess were seriously ill with diphtheria, which if you don't know what it is, that's a highly contagious disease. And the doctors warned the princess not to get too close to her children because she would endanger her own life. One day, one of her younger daughters, Alex, was, was struggling just for breath. And Princess Alice took Alex into her arms and, and to try to comfort her. Grasping for air and unaware of the danger, little Alex begged her mother, Kiss me, mother. Kiss me. Without even a moment of thinking, she didn't regard herself for her safety. Princess Alice tenderly kissed her daughter. And as a result, Princess Alice contracted diphtheria. And a few days later, she died. And when Gladstone shared the story, the members of the House of Commons stood in silent honor for that kind of sacrifice. Alex, later known as Alexandra Ferdinova, survives 
And she becomes the one who marries the last Russian czar, Nicholas II. Real love forgets self, and real love never considers the cost. And that is a picture of the depth of God's love for us. God loves us so much that he sent his only son into this world to become one of us. And that only son, Jesus, has tenderly kissed us in our sin-sick condition and took upon himself our sin and our sickness at the cross. He died so we can live. That's what Paul says at the end of our text, isn't it? As Jesus died for all, that those who, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Check your motives. Check them hard. And then may the love of Christ compel you to do absolutely crazy things for the glory of God. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.